All right, we'll turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. And this morning I'll be reading verses 17 to 20. Now I urge you, brethren... Keep your eye on those who cause divisions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience is reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil." The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. This uh, letter that we're coming to the conclusion of uh, is about the great doctrines of the gospel, like justification by faith alone um, and uh, all that we have uh, in Christ uh, by faith. It's explained um, here in uh, this letter to uh, the Romans. And yet in all these wonderful doctrines, Paul never forgets that the gospel puts you into a fellowship. Gospel puts you into a fellowship. Puts you into a fellowship with God through his son. Puts you into a fellowship with the Lord and also with his people, the church. And Paul never forgets that as he writes about this wonderful gospel. The The gospel message cannot be separated from the life of the church. It can't be abstracted from the life of the church and still be the gospel and still be something that gives life uh, to say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to distill it all out and just, just get the doctrine without the church. And that's uh, impossible to do. And Paul never uh, forgets that. Paul writes at the beginning of this letter to the Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And in the same breath, he can say, I'm not ashamed of the church that confesses it. I'm not ashamed of the church that stands for the gospel and spreads it by proclaiming it to others uh, as well. And so they are one and the same, uh, the gospel and the, and the church that uh, comes into being through uh, that very same gospel and then holds to it and gives it to others as well. The uh, title of my message this morning is called Unity and Victory. And that's not just the title, but the outline too, because it's uh, a two-part outline in this kind of brief uh, chapter. So verse 17 through 19, we'll look at unity. And then verse 20, we'll look at uh, victory. Those things are not unrelated. Unity and victory, they're together. They're actually uh, overlapping. And so you won't have the the victory that it speaks of at the end of this passage apart from the unity with brothers and sisters by which we together triumph over Satan. And we'll talk about uh, that. You won't have the victory apart from unity and you won't have the unity apart from victory. In other words, the victory that it speaks about is going to happen in the church. And so if you're united together with the Lord, united together with um, uh, your brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, he's bringing you on to this victory over Satan uh, together with, uh, with uh, the Lord's uh, people. So Paul writes uh, to this church about the gospel, never forgetting about the life of the church. In fact, Paul wrote... This detailed explanation of the gospel to a church where he had uh, never been, uh, hoping that the gospel itself might help them see their possibly misplaced priorities. Uh, and by that, I mean that they were at least tempted to, and he addresses this at the end of the letter, they were at least tempted to define the church around 
shared foods or shared holidays. And he talks about that in chapter 14 and 15, rather than the shared gospel. That's what should define the church. And so he writes them a very fresh, detailed presentation of the gospel. And it's uh, uh, designed uh, from the outset uh, to tell them what's important, to tell them what their fellowship is based on. It should be based on this very uh, same gospel. Paul writes this church, the gospel, uh, so that they might hold to it in unity stand together for it and help him spread that gospel to others, to the lost, um, especially to those that the church in Rome was poised to help, that is, those that lived west of them. And Paul hoped to uh, go together with the church in uh, Rome and uh, minister beyond them uh, to even as far as uh, Spain. Well, this is the last um, uh, the last part of the epistle of uh, Romans. It's a brief passage, and he just touches on this, unity and uh, victory, and, and warns them against uh, division at the, at the last moment. He just puts in a brief word about this. Sometimes when a person leaves a room, the last thing they say before they leave or before they're done uh, talking to you is kind of significant and revealing of everything that they've said before that. Um, it tells you what's been on the on their mind all along and why they started talking to you in uh, the first place. And so Paul, at the end of this letter, he puts in a word about unity, puts in a warning about uh, division, and it reveals what was on his mind all along as he sat down to write them this letter. As he sat down saying, I'm going to write the Romans a letter, one like I've never written before, more detailed than I've ever written before. And his reason for it, he was thinking about their unity. He was thinking about they need to know this in order that they might unite uh, around it and, and ward off any threat of uh, division and that I might unite with them and minister uh, with them uh, for the gospel in uh, the future. And so unity was uh, Paul's purpose uh, in writing this all along. And it comes out at the end, just in a brief passage at uh, the end. So uh, unity, verse 17 through 19, and then victory, verse 20. And what Paul writes about unity, he puts in uh, in uh, three parts. Puts in three parts. And the first part is in verse 17. It's instruction for the congregation about how they should relate to those who cause division. Instruction for the congregation about how they should relate to those who cause division. Now, I urge you, brethren, Keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you've learned and turn away from them. Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 16 says, There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and the seventh, one who spreads strife among brothers. The King James Version says it more memorably, he that soweth discord among brethren. It's an abomination to the Lord. This is in uh, Proverbs given to the uh, people of Israel that uh, it's an abomination to the Lord, someone who makes a division, who causes division, who spreads strife, sows discord uh, among brethren, and how much more in the church, someone who spreads division, causes division in the church, which should be lifelong relationships between brothers uh, and sisters and are actually eternal relationships uh, that we have uh, in the Lord. And so uh, this uh, business of unity in the church or warning against division in the church is serious business to the Lord and not something that is to be taken 
lightly. And that's how Paul uh, addresses it here as he uh, addresses the church one last time with this warning of this thing that's been on his mind uh, for uh, uh, the whole time. I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances. Now, who are these that Paul is uh, speaking of who cause divisions, cause dissensions and uh, hindrances? Well, when there's people in the church in Rome who say, I believe I should observe certain holidays and abstain from certain foods, which is one of the, th- the main thing I think that was threatening division, this issue. Uh, but when there's those in the, in the church in Rome who say, well, I, I believe I should uh, observe certain holidays. I, I believe I should abstain from certain food. Paul calls them weak in the faith. And his instructions for them is welcome them fully as brothers and sisters in Christ approve of them and be careful with them. Don't pressure the more impressionable among them to break their conscience. But if there's those who say, I believe I should observe holidays and abstain from foods and I can't worship the Lord or have Christian fellowship where the view of those who are different from me is approved as equal to mine. Uh, Paul calls those people not weak in faith. He calls them Judaizers. He calls them Judaizers and does that uh, elsewhere. And he opposes them publicly and he warns uh, against them. And it's this kind of thing uh, that he's warning about here. I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause divisions, not not just who practice one thing or another thing uh, relating to issues that can uh, divide, but uh, those who cause a division and who won't accept anything except for division over these uh, issues, divisions and hindrances uh, contrary to uh, the teaching. And so uh, Paul opposes those who cause division, though Paul and Barnabas were swept away with them for a time before they came to their uh, senses. Charles Hodge, who comment, writes a commentary on uh, Romans, says, um, uh, those who cause these di- dissensions, Paul commands Christians first to mark, that is to notice carefully, and not allow them to pursue their corrupting course unheeded, and secondly, to avoid, that is to break off connection with them, and that's his uh, instruction towards them. Note who they are, and don't be inclined towards them, but be inclined uh, away from them is what uh, he said. Paul, in giving this instruction to the church, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances, uh, contrary to the teaching which you've learned and turn away from them, Paul expected the church to be unanimous against division without being unanimous about foods or about holidays. He didn't expect the church to be unanimous uh, about uh, those uh, things, but he expected the church to be unanimous against uh, division. And so, uh, they were, the, the people were not to say, uh, well, someone wants to cause division in the church, but I sympathize with them with some degree because I agree with them about foods, whichever way it was, or I agree with them, uh, about, uh, uh, holidays. Uh, no, Paul, Paul, uh, wants, uh, all the brethren, no matter what they practice, even if they practice the same thing in common, uh, with these, uh, to uh, mark out, to notice those causing division and uh, to turn away from them, certainly to turn away from the division uh, that they are causing. Uh, Paul says that they are causing uh, these, these that are a threat um, to the unity of the church. They're causing division and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned. 
contrary to the teaching which you learned. And um, actually, the uh, the way Paul says it uh, is is not quite as strong as contrary to the teaching which you learned. It's really apart from, outside of, beside the teaching that uh, you learned. And what is the teaching that they learned? Uh, that these that are causing division are turning away from. Well, it's it's basic. <laughs> it's basic teaching, such as you find in uh, Romans. It's the teaching that our unity and our fellowship is in Christ. It's based on the gospel. It's it's a fellowship with those who share the same uh, gospel. So our unity and our fellowship is based on Christ. Second, that we're to deal with personal offenses directly, biblically. Uh, and the Bible tells us how to do that, to go directly to the person who has uh, offended you, to sit down with them in an environment of love and to settle it. And so we're to have the courage to obey what the scripture says about personal offenses. And then thirdly, to agree to disagree in non-essentials. Our, our fellowship is based on the gospel. We don't agree about everything. We're not going to agree about everything, but to agree to disagree in non-essentials. If the Lord's people do that, to find the fellowship around Christ, the gospel, take care of personal offenses uh, biblically, directly, and agree to disagree in non-essentials, the Lord's people can get through anything together without the bond being broken, uh, whatever Satan throws at us uh, to separate us. Um, that's the teaching we've learned at Trinity Bible Church for as long as we've been uh, a church, that our fellowship is based on Christ. Our fellowship is based on unity. We're to deal with personal offenses directly, and we're to agree to disagree in non-essentials, and we should stick to it. Uh, we should uh, not uh, change that. When the bond is broken, it can be mended by going back to those things, by going back to those things. Reaffirming our fellowship is is, is what... The doctrine uh, that, that Romans is reminding us of. Our fellowship is based on the gospel. Our fellowship is based on Christ. Uh, we're to deal with personal offenses the way scripture tells us uh, to deal with it. And we're to agree to disagree in things that are not uh, essential. And when the bond is broken, that's the only way back. It's the teaching that uh, we have been taught uh, and which we have learned. So keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching, the basics which you have learned, and uh, avoid them. That's the instruction. So unity in three parts. The first is instruction for the congregation about how we should relate to those who cause division. And the next two parts are the reason why, the reason why we should uh, act in this way. And uh, the first reason, it's in verse 18, it's because of how dividers operate, because of how dividers cause uh, division. And so it's described in verse 18. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the heart of the unsuspecting. And so it says about these some that, that cause division and hindrances in uh, the body of Christ. Um, somehow Christ has gotten lost and self has taken over. And as uh, Christ has gotten lost, uh, the idea of giving, that's the character of Christ, has gotten lost as well. And the worldly idea of taking, of getting, receiving has taken over. And so uh, they're described as those who are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of themselves and especially their own appetites. Their own uh, bellies is the way it's uh, literally uh, uh, put uh, uh, here. So um, they're described 
Like in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, those whose God is their belly who mind earthly things. And so Christ has gotten lost. Spiritual things have gotten lost. And uh, earthly things have uh, taken over. And such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own uh, appetites. That title for uh, the Lord, there's, there's uh, uh, times when the Lord is called the Lord Jesus. He's called the Lord Jesus Christ called Jesus Christ, and sometimes I, when I come across those in Scripture, I don't know the exact significance of why one of those is uh, chosen or not. This is one that's used, it's a little bit unusual. It's uh, the Lord Christ. Such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ as they should be. They should be slaves of our Lord Christ, but of their own uh, appetites. And uh, it's used in Scripture, this title, Lord Christ, kind of an unusual one. It's used only twice both uh, in the context of slaves. And the other time that it's used, uh, you might remember this, Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, do your work heartily. This is the Lord's instructions for those who are slaves. As for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And so that's, again, that same title, again, used uh, as here, in the context of um, slavery. Lord Christ, it's two titles. It's not a per- The personal name of the Lord is Jesus. That's the name that his parents gave him. It's his personal name. It's the name that his friends uh, called him by. Lord is a title that speaks of his authority, and Christ is an office that speaks that he's anointed Messiah. He's anointed to be king. Um, and so it uh, speaks of uh, his office. And so to call him the Lord Christ and leave out his personal name, Jesus, in, in a way, it's it's sort of uh, keeping a respectful distance. You know, it's like if we called someone uh, our president of our, of our country, you know, that's kind of a rather by his name. You know, we're emphasizing his office. It's kind of a respectful way. It's not what a friend would call him. You know, a friend would call him uh, uh, by name. Uh, and so it's a, a, something that, that speaks of uh, respect emphasizes his authority and of his office. And this is uh, those who are causing divisions have somehow lost sight of his authority and lost sight of his office. Such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own uh, appetites. The uh, scriptures, um, the Lord transforms the concept of worldly slavery. And so uh, all the details of Slavery, as it's has been practiced in the world, are not a good analogy for our relationship with the Lord, and that's brought out in Scripture often. Like when the Lord says, "No longer do I call you slaves; I call you friends," you know. And so um, many of, in fact, most of the aspects of uh, worldly slavery are not a good analogy for the believer's relationship with the Lord. But one certainly is, and that is devotion to His will. In that way, we're like slaves. We ought to relate to the Lord like slaves. We ought to be uh, devoted to do uh, the Lord's uh, will. And uh, so somehow that's uh, been lost by these who are causing uh, divisions. They um, are not slaves of the Lord Christ in the way that they ought to be, but uh, have substituted themselves and their own desires. And this is why they're caught up in uh, causing uh, uh, divisions. They don't respect the Lord's office. They don't respect the Lord's authority, but uh, rather they respect their own. Uh, authority in a, own office instead of the Lord, and they've made that a substitute uh, for him. That's the way they're described in this uh, passage. So that describes kind of 
the problem uh, in, in themselves, but uh, the, the rest of it describes uh, the way this division is caused by them. By their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Receive, deceive the hearts, my translation says, of the unsuspecting. Your translation might say something like the innocent, but it's it's the idea of innocent in the sense of naive, someone who believes uh, anything. That same Greek word is used to translate um, a proverb, uh, Proverbs chapter 14 and verse uh, 15, which says, the naive believes everything, but the sensible man considers his steps. And so um, the these who cause division, who've lost sight of the Lord and somehow put themselves in the place uh, of Christ are causing division or, or Paul's concerned about the threat for the church in Rome, that they would cause uh, division among the naive, among those who aren't really thinking uh, as they should, uh, among the unsuspecting, and that they would do so through flattering speech, flattering speech, by their smooth and flattering uh, speech, and it's, it speaks of, actually of, it's a word for kindness, but kindness in the sense of sort of buttering someone up here for their speech, for smooth. And then uh, flattering would be praise, praising uh, speech. They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting, and those, those are those that they're um, uh, uh, including in their uh, divisions. And uh, so those who are included in these uh, divisions their support for the division is heartfelt. Uh, by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of uh, the unsuspecting. So their support for the division is uh, wholehearted, but it's based on them being flattered. It's based on uh, uh, just a, a social thing. It's like uh, Absalom, who stole the hearts of the people, and he did so by uh, flattery. Uh, Charles Hodge, again, commentates on this. He says, by plausible and flattering address... They win influence over the simple. Those who are causing division win influence over uh, uh, the simple. And so a hallmark of those that Paul is warning against and the way uh, that they cause division in uh, the church is, is that they cause division not even about duplicating their beliefs about where the fault line of division ought to be among those who follow them in that uh, division, but just by receiving a loyalty from those who uh, follow them, who are won over by um, their speech uh, towards uh, them. And so uh, that's the way in which uh, their followers are uh, uh, described, not being dedicated necessarily to the same principle, but being dedicated to these persons that are causing this uh, uh, division. That's not the way in which People are to follow in the church. They're not to be impressed by the leaders in the church, and that's why they're there. They're to be disciples of the Lord. They're to be learners of the Lord, to be understanding the things that are taught and believing them by conviction so that they could stand alone if necessary on these uh, uh, convictions. And so this is one of the hallmarks of this division that Paul uh, warns uh, against is that the leaders of it aren't necessarily even spreading their convictions that lead to uh, division, but uh, simply including people in their division by uh, flattering them. And so Paul says to be, uh, this is why you're to be warned against this kind of division that can show up uh, in the church. Paul was concerned that it might show up in the church in uh, Rome. So uh, Paul describes unity um, and gives warnings that are meant to promote unity in uh, three parts. First, instructions. 
uh, for the congregation about those who cause unity with two reasons for it. The first is how those who cause divisions operate. And so he describes uh, how they operate. Uh, and the second is what's at stake. What's at stake? And that's in verse 19. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. And uh, this uh, next part of this uh, verse raises some questions. Why does, how, how are we supposed to take this? Why does Paul put this uh, right here? He's warning them against them, and he's warning them especially because the report of your obedience has reached to all. And some have even thought, that he's saying that they're, the Romans are just, they're known for being especially compliant. You know, like they'll obey anybody. You know, that's why I'm warning you about these uh, teachers, because I know you're so obedient. The report of your obedience has reached uh, to all. I don't think he's saying they're obedient to anyone. Rather, what he's saying is you're obedient to the Lord, and you're known for being obedient to uh, the Lord. It's the same thing that he told them in Romans chapter 1 and verse 8. Therefore, I thank God through Jesus Christ for you all. Because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Uh, the Roman church had a reputation not for obedience to anyone who claimed it, but uh, actually for obedience to uh, the Lord. And so they had a good reputation built over many years. And Paul did not want that gospel testimony to be ruined by division. And so as he's instructing them and warning them about uh, division, he says, I'm doing this especially because the report of your obedience has reached uh, to all. And so he's saying, don't squander your testimony. Don't squander your testimony by uh, by uh, division, but rather seek to uh, head off uh, division. The report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I'm rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And that's kind of how he um, ends his uh, kind of final word to them and warning them against uh, uh, division. It's similar to what uh, the Lord said when he sent his disciples into the world. He says, I want you to be uh, as wise as serpents and as innocent as uh, doves. It's not quite the same thought that Paul is expressing here, but uh, close uh, to it. Um, he's, he wants them to be wise in what is good. And in order to have unity, they're going to have to be wise. In what is good, and he wants them to be innocent in what is evil. And the word for innocent here is not like the word we had before about the hearts of the innocent in the sense of naive and unsuspecting, uh, easily duped um, in verse 18. But it's innocent in the sense of uh, unstained, untainted by division. I want you, I, when division comes, I want you to be untainted by it, is what he's saying. And so I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And uh, avoiding division takes wisdom. He says something similar about that to what he said in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 20. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. In evil be infants, but in your thinking be uh, mature. But uh, Paul told them how to deal with this problem of division that uh, he knew was already kind of rearing its head in the church, uh, this division that had even uh, Jew and Gentile, the difference between Jew and Gentile behind it was manifesting itself in uh, differences over food practices and differences in uh, uh, holidays. And Paul told them how to deal with it in chapter 14 and 15. And what he told them was complex. It was complicated. You know, it wasn't, uh, well, you all are having problems over this. This is going to work out best if everybody does the same thing. 
So here's the foods you can eat. Here's the foods you can't eat. Here's the days you can celebrate. Everybody do it. And that's how we're going to solve this. Uh, that would have been uh, something uh, quite simple that would not have required a lot of wisdom to have that kind of unity. It's sort of a one-size-fits-all. But when Paul talks about them uh, avoiding uh, division, he says, I want you to be wise in what is good. And so what he told them uh, to preserve unity um, amongst those uh, differences was something that was flexible. Uh, something that required wisdom, something that required doing different things in different situations and required different people doing different things because different people are in different situations. And so it's something that uh, required uh, wisdom. The same is true in other uh, uh, scrapes that Paul had with uh, the Judaizers where the Judaizers were saying something very simple. If you're a Christian, you have to be circumcised. That's it. It's one size fits all. And for Paul, uh, uh, he didn't say the exact opposite of them, but uh, he had Timothy circumcised. Timothy's father was Jewish. His mother was uh, Gentile. Titus, he refused. In certain situations, Paul was uh, able to be under the law to those who were under the law to not cause offense and uh, to win many uh, more to Christ. And in other, especially where the church was being defined around a certain practice, he says, no, that's compromising the gospel. And it took wisdom to know the difference uh, between those uh, situations. And so uh, Paul says, uh, I want uh, you to pursue unity. And in order to do that, you're going to have to be wise. In order to be uh, innocent, untainted by uh, what is evil and the division that is evil, it's going to require uh, wisdom. It's going to, And so I want you to be wise uh, in what is good. Well, uh, unity and victory. That's what Paul touches on briefly in this uh, final instruction to uh, uh, the church in Rome. So uh, for unity, he's given instruction to the congregation for uh, how to treat those who are causing uh, divisions. Uh, he's given two reasons for it. It's how those who cause divisions operate, and that's why he wants them to uh, withdraw. Uh, and then also what's at stake. What's at stake uh, is their reputation for obedience and their usefulness to the Lord. And uh, he finishes it with something related to it, which is a promise of victory for the church. And that's in verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Kind of a surprising, kind of comes out of the blue about God is going to crush Satan underneath your feet. He doesn't say it as a prayer, but as a declaration. It's a promise. God will soon crush Satan under your feet. And it's designed to encourage them. It's designed to fill them with courage. And it's put in the plural, I think, on purpose here. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet, not even necessarily as individuals, although I'm sure that's true. But, it, but what he has, especially in view here, is together, you know, Strive to preserve the unity. Be wise to preserve uh, the unity. And as you're doing it, be encouraged that God is going to crush Satan underneath your feet, yours together in uh, the church. Of course, this is a, a thread of scripture that goes all the way back to the beginning, goes back to Genesis chapter 3, uh, 15. People have called this the first promise of the gospel. Uh, shortly after Adam and Eve's for sin, where the Lord promises, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head uh, and you shall bruise him on uh, the heel. And uh, so the seed of the woman, which is Christ, is going to bruise Satan, crush Satan's head. Although uh, Satan has crushed 
the seed of the woman on the heel. And uh, what's that a reference to? It's a reference to the cross uh, of Christ, where the serpent, it's as if the serpent attacks Christ, bites his uh, heel, crushes his heel, and yet in, in doing that, the serpent is crushed by Christ on the on the cross. And so you say, well, when did that happen? When did Christ crush Satan's head according to this prophecy? Well, he did it at the cross, and he cried out, it is finished, it's done. And he crushed uh, certain se- Satan's head, and he did it alone. It's important that he did it alone. He suffered there alone in our place, and even all his disciples uh, fled uh, from him, and it's done. And that's certainly true that Christ accomplished this, and he did it alone. And yet, his victory over Satan, and this is important as well, is also shared with us. This is also uh, by grace uh, to us that there's a way in which we not only receive the victory over Satan, but we also participate in that victory over Satan. And that's what's promised here. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, as he's also crushed under Christ's feet. He's crushed under your feet as well. And uh, a number of passages of scripture you could uh, speak of, uh, and I some from Revelation came to mind. A lot of the threads that begin in Genesis are tied up in Revelation. But uh, Revelation speaks of uh, Christ being an overcomer, a conqueror, and us uh, sharing in that with him. Like, for example, uh, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21, where Christ promises to his church, He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And we kind of barely have any idea of just a vague inkling of what that might mean, but it certainly means Christ sharing in this great victory that he has over Satan to those who overcome, to those who actually experience what it is to overcome in uh, Christ. And it says about um, tribulation saints, there's going to be a great tribulation. There's going to be people saved on the earth in that uh, tribulation. Many of them, perhaps most of them will die, will give their life uh, to the Lord, and in so doing will overcome Satan uh, uh, and be part of the overcoming of Satan. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, talks about believers at that time, and they overcame Satan because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. It speaks of courage, not loving your life even unto death. And so there are those who are able to lay down uh, the ultimate sacrifice of their own uh, life in their testimony to the Lord. And in so doing, they're part of Satan being uh, overcome. They're uh, overcomers. Romans itself speaks of us being overcomers. Same word, uh, familiar verse, Romans uh, chapter uh, 8, in the things that we suffer. In the things that we suffer, we're also made to be overcomers. In fact, we're made to be more than overcomers, more than overcomers in uh, in Christ. Just as written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. It's the same word for overcome. Uh, we overwhelmingly overcome through him who loved us. Overcome who? Overcome Satan. Uh, through him who uh, overcame us. So Satan bruises Christ's heel. And the victory that Satan won uh, when he deceived Eve and caused Adam to sin uh, as well, changed the world. It wasn't just the spiritual, it didn't just show up in the spiritual realm, but it caused, caused weeds to grow, caused death to permeate everything on the earth, caused the whole atmosphere of the earth to change and the earth to be a place where death uh, rules. And uh, so when Satan is crushed under our feet, 
Uh, it's also something that just, doesn't just take place in the spiritual realm. It actually changes things on earth. It actually causes, in the end, as Satan is ultimately defeated, for the curse to be repealed on the earth. And Christ is going to come, as it says in Revelation, and reign over the earth uh, for uh, 1,000 years. So the defeat of Satan it definitely has a decisive moment. That's the moment of the cross. That's the moment of Christ crying out, it is finished, and bruising uh, the serpent's uh, uh, head. But it's, it's also a defeat that's played out over time. Satan is defeated in principle, but his doom is yet to be worked out. He's still uh, doing plenty of things. He's still uh, walking about on the earth like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And his defeat, his humiliation and defeat is going to be played out uh, over time. It reminds me of the book of Esther. The book of Esther and Haman, I think, is a great type for Satan. There's certainly a decisive part in Haman's defeat where uh, Esther points the finger uh, in the presence of the king and says a foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman, you know, and then his face is covered uh, because uh, he's going to die. The king leaves and wrath returns and uh, Haman is uh, uh, begging for mercy at the queen in such a way that it looks like he's attacking the queen and uh, his doom is uh, sealed uh, at that uh, moment. And yet Haman's defeat and the defeat of everything that he plans, it happens in a complicated way. It plays out actually over time, over a number of weeks uh, for that whole uh, uh, year. There's not just two banquets that Esther wants, but or one, but two. Um, there's the the uh, everything that Haman planned uh, uh, is destroyed over one day for those living in the country, over two days for those living in uh, the capital city. As it all plays out, Haman is hanged on gallows, and then later his sons are hanged as well on the gallows. And so um, Haman's uh, defeat takes place at a decisive moment, and yet it plays out uh, over time uh, as well. And uh, it's the same for Satan. His doom is sure, and yet his defeat is being played out in a complicated way. And there's a way in which it's being played out even now. As you see, Satan, he seems like his agenda is advancing at an accelerated rate in the world today. And we look around in the world, look at our city, look at any indicator that you want, look at what's going around uh, in the schools. And sometimes it's frustrating to say, well, how, how, can, we, how can we stand? What can we do to uh, stand uh, against that? And uh, there's a couple of ways in which we stand against that. One is just the way in, in which we're responsible just because we're created in God's image uh, to restrain evil in the world, and that's as much as we can hope to do in that is simply to restrain evil. In that, we even join unbelievers who are also created in his image in things like um, uh, good government. It's actually designed to restrain uh, evil, and we join even with unbelievers in that. And yet, we don't hope to overturn Satan through that, only at best to restrain uh, the evil that Satan causes. But there's one way in which we're actually involved in overturning Satan's advances and actually eliminating Satan from the world. And that's the narrow task that we've been given in the church to preach the gospel. That's the task that Christ has given us uh, between the time of his ascension and the time of his return is to preach the gospel, uh, to stand for the gospel and to uh, preach the gospel. And so it's in both of those ways that we uh, are to um, seek to thwart 
Satan, but especially in this way in which we're actually going to be part of overcoming him and standing for the gospel, spreading it uh, to others uh, as well. Your part in that may seem really small, may be really small, and yet it's important. It's involved in uh, the spreading of the gospel. It's involved in the life of the church. And Paul is teaching the Christians in Rome and, and teaching us as well to Think of yourself as right on the cusp of victory over Satan, because that's what he says about it. The God of peace, uh, who's characterized by peace, will soon crush Satan under your feet. It will happen quickly. And so he's uh, teaching us to think of uh, the victory over Satan together and to think of it as as more within reach as you might, uh, more within reach than you might want to think about it. Uh, according to perception, he says, no, Satan is uh, about to be dealt a, a crushing blow under your feet through you being an overcomer, even in the circumstances uh, that you are in. And I think Paul gives that to encourage them just in general, but also especially in this matter of church unity at uh, at the end of this uh, letter. And uh, because it's a it's a Corporate victory. It's a victory that we have together. It's Satan crushed not just under the feet of one, but under the feet of all as well. And as he ends this part of the letter, he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. And so this victory in unity is going to be accomplished through Christ, a relationship with Christ that involves grace free gift of uh, Christ to the undeserving every step of the way. And so Paul says, don't, don't get ahead of grace. Grace is uh, along uh, with this. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Again, a title for uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's called the Lord Jesus. He's called by his personal name here when it deals with his grace. And he's called by the title of his authority, his lordship. And his lordship is demonstrated most in the gospel in his authority to save and to save alone. He alone has the authority to do that and to give grace. And so it's the grace of our Lord Jesus that he says uh, to be with you. So unity and victory. Victory and unity. Both of those are important. Both of those are uh, to go together. And uh, the, the um, gist of this is to warn against division. To warn against division. That's what he wants to leave uh, the Roman believers uh, with is against uh, division. When is division right? When is division right? Christ divides. Christ divides. And he's been, he even just talks about uh, dividing uh, families uh, as well. Martin Luther caused a great division. Uh, and uh, his opponents and his enemies at the time uh, flung something at him that struck him to his heart, which is, are you alone wise? Are you alone wise? And he, that really struck him and he thought about that. It bothered him even when he was by himself. Am I alone wise? Am I the only one who understands uh, 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 the gospel? Well, he agonized over that. He proved actually that he was not alone, that the church had, the church had departed from the faith and that church history even proved that. He, he uh, identified the time 300 years before when he felt that the church had abandoned uh, the true gospel and, and began teaching something else uh, in its place. And so it was not he alone that was wise, but even church history uh, was on his side. But the reason why he accepted the division when it came, he didn't seek division, but he certainly accepted it when he came is because the truth of the gospel was at stake. The truth of the gospel as defined in this letter, even of uh, scripture, the doctrine of uh, the gospel. 
And so he ended up saying, I'm not ashamed of this division that's being caused because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because I'm not, in, in order to be ashamed of this division, I'd have to be ashamed of uh, the true uh, gospel. And so th- that's um, a division that's right. Is a division that uh, is is uh, divides where Christ divides, where the gospel divides. That's a division uh, that is right. A division that's worth keeping uh, in uh, place. Uh, divisions within the gospel, divisions within the body of of Christ, are, are what Paul is warning about uh, here. Another way of saying it: those who will triumph over Satan together shouldn't be divided. From each other, there should be no uh, division there. And if there's a rift, then it should be healed. And it's not too late. It's never too late uh, to uh, do that. So we should be vigilant that divisions don't start. Uh, when they start, we should be vigilant that they don't continue. And uh, when they're made, we should be uh, uh, diligent that these divisions should be healed. We had a fire this week that we were praying about, eventful week uh, in the church. But a fire spreads until it's put out. And uh, sometimes the fire smolders, and then and then uh, it, it uh, reappears uh, later. And so we're glad when the rains come. We want them to put the fire out. And it's the same with this division. And that's why Paul speaks of this division in this way, and warns uh, uh, against it. But uh, a division is to be ended, and its old divisions are meant to be uh, healed as well among the Lord's people, even if it involves work and toil. And uh, difficulty, it's worth it to work out uh, on earth what otherwise will be worked out uh, in heaven. And Satan would like nothing better than to sideline on earth those who are going to be united uh, in heaven in order that they might not participate in his earthly defeat uh, together. But uh, Satan is to be thwarted in this matter of uh, division uh, that he seeks to cause. His doom is sure. His doom is sure, and it's the kingdom of Christ that will stand forever. Let's pray. Dear Father, we uh, pray that you would um, prevent us from division. We pray that you might heal uh, divisions uh, in us. We pray that you would uh, cause unity and unity for the gospel, unity uh, in that would stand for what matters uh, before you, which is Christ himself, the cause of Christ and uh, the gospel. We pray that we might uh, accept division where um, where it's appropriate, where it's, it's meant to be, and it's Christ himself who uh, divides. And uh, so we accept that division, but we pray that you protect us from division within uh, the body of Christ. We thank you for the victory that all believers have over Satan. We pray that you might hasten that victory. Show us uh, better how to participate in that victory, but we know it certainly begins by believing the promise uh, of your scripture uh, is true, that the God of peace will crush Satan's head under our feet and we'll do it quickly. We'll do it shortly. We pray that we might be expecting that and working towards that in faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.